Good day, everyone. My name's Fritz Wood, and I'm joined again today by my friend and colleague and financial advisor, Jesse Bunsey. Today, we're going to talk about some of life's major events, and very specifically, we're going to examine it and try to advise you from a financial point of view. So recognizing that maybe a lot of the people listening to this podcast are in the first half of their life, one of the financial life events that tends to come along for a lot of folks is marriage. Let me throw that out to you, Jesse. I know you're married and have been for five years or so, but a lot of your friends and colleagues are in the process of getting married or have recently been married. So what sort of financial advice would you give someone or what sort of considerations are there as two people join their life together? I think that's something that is very, very important to address. And I would start off with maybe a broader picture of what are we trying to accomplish here with this council and about 50% of marriages end in divorce and they also say about 50% of divorces have to do somehow with money or possessions. Getting a, a solid foundation very early in a marriage pays dividends not just you know financially but also for your health and, and general happiness and so it's very important to take it seriously that you are on the same page and have a dialogue going with your spouse about all of these different financial issues but usually whenever people from a specific standpoint get married it varies when they want to share with their fiance what they have and some people are very open and some people want to wait but it's definitely very important to sit down I would definitely recommend with someone with a professional and just kind of lay everything out so that you have a good idea of what you as a couple has and then to be able to make decisions from that so beginning with complete and total transparency everything from you know here's what I have to here's what I owe Here's my credit report from each of the three different credit reporting companies. Here's my FICO score. So financial nakedness, it sounds like what you're describing here, that builds the foundation for the parade. It increases the likelihood of a successful financial future. You know, let me ask you about this, and I know this is common, but I also know it's potentially deadly for any relationship. Do you have any experience in the people you've talked with over the years on what I would call financial secret keeping or maybe more commonly called financial infidelity where maybe I'm not forthright, maybe I have a little money that I sort of keep to myself over here or make purchases that I'm not completely honest about? I mean, tell me how that ends. Well, it never ends well. Whenever I'm initially meeting with a couple, one of the initial questions as I get to know them a little bit better is always going to be, how do you guys manage your finances on a day-to-day -day level? Do you guys have shared accounts? Do you guys have separate accounts? If you do, can the other spouse always see what's going on in that other account? And that's very important because it's just a simple thing that people can do by being completely open with all of the transactions that they're taking part in that can bring a lot more peace of mind to a marriage. So even if I have my account and my spouse has her account, you know, you would recommend that we both certainly have, you know, password access to one another's accounts. And so everything's, again, perfectly above board and transparent. Absolutely. And also just knowing what each other is doing on a daily basis from a spending perspective can certainly help you to keep spending under control as well. Is it more common in your experience that people combine 
accounts and sort of operate out of one account, or is it more common that there's sort of a his and her account, or what's your guidance or experience there? After a couple of years have passed, by far the most common, and what I recommend is having joint accounts where it's it's a single account that you guys are both husband and wife or both of the spouses are on. Early on, oftentimes, it's, you've got a ton of stuff that you want to do, and that gets kind of pushed to the bottom. But a joint account is by far the most common way that I see people manage their finances as a couple. How often do you see couples agree to sort of a purchasing threshold that you sort of have permission to spend up to a certain amount of money without seeking the other person's approval? But if you intended to buy something greater than that amount, you know, it would be something that would warrant a conversation at home. Is that a very common setup? I do see that from time to time with couples. And in many cases, I think that would be very helpful and probably should be something that more people do. I also think, though, that just having a set time, maybe it's once a week or maybe it's once a month, that you look over what you've spent as a couple and you talk about that, that oftentimes as well can really keep spending down. Let me ask you this. In your experience, Jesse, do couples have these conversations easily, naturally? I mean, do they uh, are they comfortable? I mean, is it something that you see most people doing, you know, sitting down one day a week or one day a month and or even one day a year and then sort of intentionally having these conversations? Does that come naturally for a couple? Well, I do have all five digits on my right hand here, but I could definitely count using just those digits the number of people that I've come into contact with that have a good framework in place to be able to have these conversations. I had mentioned in an earlier podcast that I myself have a financial advisor. This is just one of the many reasons my wife and I chose to do that is to keep us accountable. And it's not something that people do naturally. And quite frankly, it oftentimes can cause arguments. I've seen couples have arguments in front of me about spending. And so that makes it even more important. Even if it's a relatively minor expense, people have their pet peeves, and oftentimes it can lead to argument, but keeping it in the dark is far more damaging long-term to a marriage. And it's a lot easier to row this boat if uh, both people are rowing the same direction. I mean, I find it's uncommon, relatively speaking, for people that are not working with a financial professional. It's unusual that they would have these conversations. It's unusual that they would talk about spending or overspending or be intentional about creating a spending plan or a budget. And, you know, I think there is value. We haven't talked about this, Jesse, but I think there is great value for couples to get on the same page financially. And I tend to recommend things like Dave Ramsey program Financial Peace University, which has been very successful for a long time. And do you recommend a program like that for people to get on the same page and have and, and begin to share the same goals? I think anything that a couple can do that will get them talking, provide some sort of framework, and also provide some level of accountability is always going to be a good thing. And I agree. I mean, there's a lot of different programs out there. I've had a lot of clients that have gone through Financial Peace University, and it has changed their lives. Oftentimes, it's just a case of looking at what your situation is from a spending and saving standpoint. The majority of people that I have come in as new clients, when I ask them, do you know what it takes to run your life on a monthly basis, have no idea. That's also my experience. Let's talk about a couple other things. I see a lot of people making what end up being huge financial mistakes in their 20s. 
and sometimes into their 30s and 40s. And that is a couple of the biggest line items in the family budget, and that would be housing and transportation. In particular, you know, and I mentioned this in the web conference, that a lender is likely to loan a veterinarian more money, let's say, for a home and more money, let's say, for a car than that veterinarian ought to borrow because the banks know that the veterinarian will likely pay it back. Maybe working overtime and eating rice cakes, but you'll likely not have the car repossessed or the home foreclosed upon. So what advice would you give people, you know, as they contemplate those, and we'll take them one at a time, let's say a home and then a car, a significant expenditure that obligates a whole bunch of future paychecks. What advice would you give to that person that's contemplating home ownership? I think it's very important to understand and apply the concept that there is no such thing as an independent financial decision. Every single decision that someone makes is going to have a ripple effect down the line. Now, we all need cars, we all need transportation, and specifically, you know, talking about making the housing decision, everybody needs a place to live. But you're right, oftentimes people will make decisions based on what they can get from the bank, not their ability to pay it off while also meeting all of their other obligations. And coming right out of vet school, we talked about earlier, the average indebtedness that a vet has coming out of school is around $160,000. In many parts of the country, that's a nice house right there. And so it's important to think about the fact that you are tying yourself not just to the payments on the house, but you're also tying yourself to the maintenance of the house and other expenses that come along with home ownership that oftentimes people don't take into account. Whenever I have people come to me and they want to know what is the right answer between renting and buying, I always have to give the classic answer of it depends because it does depend for everybody. Building up is something that's important, and I see buying a home as certainly a lifestyle decision, and it can be a very good purchase, but it's important to make sure that it's not going to handicap you in the other vital areas of your spending and your financial life, like paying off student loan debts and saving for the future. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think people can become what I call house poor. The house can become so all-consuming, as you just mentioned here, that it may hinder their ability to accomplish other goals that are critically important, whether that's paying off student loans or putting money away for retirement or taking a vacation. The fact is dollars are finite. Some of the advice I would give people if they were contemplating beginning this process, I think it's important that they begin at annual creditreport.com and have a look at their credit report from each of the three credit reporting companies. We'll provide a link to that at the conclusion of the podcast. So you want to make sure if you're getting ready to borrow a bunch of money that you do not have any errors in your credit report that are penalizing or diluting your credit score. You know, certainly you want to be in a good position as far as having an emergency fund. I think that would be very important trying to think of a handful of other things you'd want to sort of have in order. I think one of the important things that I see people make this mistake all the time is I tend to believe that it's a mistake to buy a home if you're not pretty sure that you're going to live there for at least the next five years. And the reason why is just the transaction costs on the buy side and on the sell side. There may be realtor commissions. Certainly there's you know legal fees and there's title insurance fees and there's 
you know, document preparation fees and, and on and on and on. And that's fine if you live there long enough. But if you don't live there long enough, you may find yourself losing money on the sale of that home. So you need to be pretty sure this is somewhere I'm going to live for a good while before you make the decision to buy. Absolutely. And I think that that's very key for those of us out there who are millennials who on average are going to move around more than our parents and definitely more than our grandparents' generation did. And it's very important to think about how long you're going to be someplace so that you don't end up have potentially even write a check to get out of your mortgage. One of the virtues of renting is, you know, at the end of your lease, then, you know, you are free to go wherever you choose. And that is a luxury that is not afforded to you when you're a homeowner. And also, to the extent you're a homeowner, I think that even increases the importance of going back to the podcast before where we talked about some of these critical insurance coverages. Because, you know, and again, this is surprising to some of our audience that if you are unable to go to work, because of an injury or an illness or any number of things, if you're unable to go to work, your house payment is still due. Your car payment is still due. You know, chances are your student loan payment is probably still due. So that's why Jesse mentioned critical importance of disability insurance. You know, it helps you pay the bill if you're unable to go to work and earn a living. How do you advise your clients on addressing their transportation needs? Well, cars can definitely be somewhat of a touchy subject. I will say that I haven't seen very many people purchase a new car purely out of need. It's very important to recognize what part of you is purchasing a car out of need, that we all do have a need for transportation, and then what amount of it is want. And there's nothing wrong with paying a little bit more money than you would normally pay for something that you want, as long as it doesn't hinder your ability to do all those other things that we've talked about. Ron Blue, who has been in the financial industry for a long time, put it very well when he said that the cheapest car that you will ever own is the one that you're driving. And what he means by that is if you look at the costs of keeping a car running a few more years versus the cost of buying a new car, very rarely are you better off not just keeping your current car. But the problem is people look around, and especially getting out into a job where you might be working alongside people who are 10 or 20 years older than you, it's pretty easy to look over and see a nice shiny truck or a nice shiny brand new car and get fixated on that. And it's really something that I think you can become, Fritz, you mentioned being house poor, you can definitely become car poor as well, tying yourself to a monthly payment for six and I think some are even seven years now. And it's also an asset that's going to go down in value. You know, my my strategy is it's just that, you know, it's it's mine, but I think it makes the most sense to let someone else buy that new car and drive it off the lot and take that first twenty or thirty or forty or fifty percent depreciation on it. What I tend to do is buy a car that's three or four or five years old and at that point it's about half priced and then try to drive it until the wheels fall off and, and ideally do that without borrowed money. You know, it's no one can convince me that it makes good sense to borrow money to invest in something that depreciates in value, which kind of brings up another point or a couple other points, Jesse, and you kind of alluded to this. I mean, we are seeing today, you know, which by any historical measure, historically a long car loan was four years you know, or 48 months. And today we're seeing car loans of 72 months or seven years. So the duration of car loans nearly double what it used to be. And all in an effort 
to fit it into the monthly budget of the average family. But some of the problems with that include, my bet is you're not going to own that car for seven years. My bet is when it comes time to get rid of that car, you're likely to owe more than it's worth. In other words, there's a professional term for that. You are upside down for you to get rid of that car. Basically, it's going to cost you money unless you go to a dealer and trade it in, and then you just sign up for a larger monthly payment. So, Jesse, what are your thoughts or comments on some of these, you know, gigantically long car loans and financing and buying used versus buying new? Do you have opinions on these things? I personally subscribe to this strategy Exactly, you know, how you described it is getting a car that's three or four or more years old that somebody's driven most or driven a chunk of the depreciation off. And I always like to say that they make air fresheners that smell like new car if that's really what somebody wants out of a new car is, is the smell because oftentimes you can get one that's a couple of years old that's in pristine condition. And what you mentioned about car loans and the duration of those extending, my guess is we haven't seen the end of that. And it is just to help people, especially younger people, to fit it into their budget. But what most people don't do is take a look at the math and see just how much interest they're paying. And two, are they putting themselves in a position to be able to write a check for their next car, or are they just putting all of their money towards this loan? I think it's very important if you do have a car loan to make it a priority to work toward being able to pay cash for your next car. And that might mean keeping a car for a few years past what you would want to keep it for. But as you mentioned in the web conference, it really can be a million-dollar decision. And because we talked about there being no independent financial decisions, it's important to look at that in the context of other things that you want to accomplish. Yeah, I've always thought of cars, you know, it's one of two things to you probably. It's a form of transportation on the one hand, or it's maybe some sort of a status symbol on the other. And the earlier that you get that figured out, the quicker your financial life is probably going to be more comfortable. The whole idea is that you will have a car that is paid for that's costing you nothing to drive other than gas and oil and you know, insurance and property taxes. So the point is, it's nice to drive for a long period of time in a car that's paid for, which kind of comes back. One other point I want you to address, Jesse, is and a question I get periodically is this notion of leasing, or I like to call it renting. Does it make sense for somebody to rent their cars in your estimation? I have never personally seen it make sense for a client, and I'm sure that there are people out there who could provide some sort of math or evidence that in certain situations it might. But Whenever you're leasing a car, it is just like renting that car. And so somebody is getting paid a premium, if that makes sense, or you're essentially paying a premium on top of what a car payment might be to be able to not own that car whenever the lease is up. And so very rarely have I actually seen it make sense other than helping people who want a certain car to be able to afford that car when they otherwise couldn't have, which is never really a good situation to be in. I'm sure no financial professional I've ever known has ever even contemplated leasing a car. I think the only situation where leasing might make sense is if you were in a situation, I've never seen it, but if you had to have a new vehicle every 24 or 36 months, and it was just for whatever reason critically important that that be a brand new car every two or three years, then you probably are better off just perpetually renting the car. We've never seen the circumstances under which it makes sense, and we don't know any smart financial people who lease cars. 
is kind of the bottom line. It allows people, leasing allows people to drive a car that they can't afford is the bottom line. And it also reconciles them to a perpetual car payment. They will never have a period of time where they're driving a car that's paid for. So we're going to wrap this up. Again, we appreciate everyone's time and attention. The podcast, this last one, will include tools and resources or links to tools and resources that I think you're going to find helpful. So, again, Jesse, thank you, and we appreciate everyone's time and attention today, and good luck.